0: Well, again, welcome, and i um, so glad that you're here. If this is your first or second time, a special welcome to you, and if there's any way that we can be helpful or answer questions, please let us know. My name is Brian Habig, one of the pastors here, and that was Jake Patton, who was leading us in worship. Um, we, if, you're, if you are visiting, we're studying through this big book of the New Testament, Romans, and we've gotten a good ways through it. We're in chapter 14, and... Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, you can just follow there in the bulletin. That's what I'm preaching from. We're going to start in verse 13. You know, if, you, uh, if you've ever read the writings of uh, the, the folks who really had a, a formative role in the founding of the United States and things that were being written during that time, obviously the word and the concept of liberty is just huge. I mean, liberty is a big deal. In the United States, we're all about freedom. But there's this other phrase that you'll find, and I'm no expert about colonial America or the Founding Fathers, but you don't have to be to know this. That there's a phrase you'll encounter called the common good that when, when writers wrote about what do, why do we want liberty, why do we want to be free from tyranny, they would talk about the common good. And that's interesting because it's not that no one else is saying that. You'll, you'll still hear people talk about that. But often the way we think about freedom and my, you know, my sense of being a liberated person is just my life. And so what, you know, what, what the expression of liberty looks like is my good versus our good. And here's the thing. There's a, there's a greater liberty... ...that the Scriptures talk about... ...and that Romans talks about... ...and that word is not so much in this passage... ...but really the the concept is all through it. And this is a huge deal with the Apostle Paul... ...that, I mean, the very things that I was asking Mason... ...if he believed... ...just the nuts and bolts of the gospel... ...is that, man, we were under the curse of God's justice. And everybody in the room deserves that. This is a level playing field... All of us deserve that. Paul begins Romans saying, it doesn't matter if you're Jewish or Gentile or whatever, everybody shows up guilty and then does other things on top of that to just keep us guilty and pile up guilt. And the Lord Jesus took on Himself our guilt. To believe in Him is to have that justice, that punishment lifted from you and to be free, free from wrath, free from the curse and Paul even talks about another kind of liberty. He says that if you belong to Jesus Christ, the power that used to be at work in your life, that like the Lord of your life called sin, making you sin, where you have to sin, you've been liberated. And certainly we can still sin, but it means that now I can change. I can follow God. Massive liberty, ultimate liberty. But how do we express it? You know, what is the liberty for? Is the liberty just for me to have this cool, individual, designer Christian life? Or is it something that frees me up for our common good? Let's look at Romans 14 and beginning in verse 13. Now remember, the passage that we looked at last week, obviously is where this is picking up. And it talked, Paul talked a lot about, if, if we are fellow believers, because he's writing to Christians, if we are people that believe that God's justice has been lifted from us, then we don't need to wield justice at each other. He talks about not passing judgment. So he picks up there in verse 13, and he writes, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know... "...and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But it's unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating... In drinking, but of righteousness, and peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean. But it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats." This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank You so much for Your Word. Thank You for the Scriptures. Thank You for the Old and the New Testament. Thank You for the Apostles. And Father, every word that proceeds from Your mouth is what we need. It's what we need to live on, but it's hard for us to hear And we struggle to understand, so we look to you and say, please help us. Open our hearts, and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, have you ever been, let's say, at someone's house, or maybe out with friends, or out with a couple? And one, one of the people you're with is telling a story. And let's say this person says, Something like, okay, so anyway, we decided to go on this great trip. So we went in February. And then the, whatever, the, the other friend or the spouse says, it wasn't February, it was March. Okay, you know that icky feeling that you get when someone does that? What, what is that? Now, I've, I've been on the receiving end of the icky feeling, and I've been the, the source of the icky feeling before. I've, not, I've done both, maybe you have too. But whether you consciously say this to yourself or explain it later, it's just the sense that in the name of being right about the details, you're just sabotaging the relationship. You know, you're just making someone feel dumb and bad to get the info right. And it probably is right. Like, the data is probably right. Or think about this one. Um, More difficult. Think about a father... husband who um, regularly tells his family that he is the head of the home. Even aggressively tells them that he is the head of the home. Biblically, is that correct? Absolutely correct. Not hard to demonstrate, upheld by the Old and the New Testament. But the more he has to say that, the more he has to wield that principle at everybody, what does it do? I mean, number one, it undermines the very leadership he's trying to parade. It's just damaging these relationships in the name of the principle that is true, that is biblically true. Now, those those get at what Paul is dealing with in this passage. Because here's the thing. He's not just writing human beings in general. As we've said, he's writing to a church. He's writing to Christians in Rome. And they actually are free, and all these wonderful things have happened in their life because the good news of Jesus is true. The question is, what do you do with that freedom? And in particular, what do other Christians in your life feel and experience as you are living out your freedom? So let's look at the passage this way. First off, just what's the let's call it what's the issue on the table? There's a question on the table. There's a a challenge. What's the issue? Then what are the doctrines that Paul brings up to apply to that? And then what are the implications for us? So the issue, the doctrines, and the implications. First off, what's the issue on the table? Um, The words eat or eating or food show up at least five times in this passage. So there's some question going on about food. And this actually came up last week, but just to catch up, what's the context? The context is that even though this church is in the city of Rome, which is uber-Gentile, there's evidence in the book that there were Christians in that church who were ethnically Jewish. Like they grew up in a synagogue, and they grew up learning the Law and the Prophets, and God worked in their heart, and they came to believe that Jesus really was the Messiah. Jesus really was the fulfillment of their Scriptures but they're ethnically Jewish, so they grew up with the dietary laws and those practices and all that. Both those groups in the same church. Now think about what that would mean for food in particular, and there's kind of a double whammy here. Here's the first part. If you grew up and you had never tasted pork, that was just not on the table, and all the people who had been the most formative in your life, all the people who had taught you uh, the Bible in your life, they never ate it. And you're just watching Roman Christians eat that or eat things similar to it that you didn't grow up with, how hard that would be. Because from your point of view, you're going, okay, all the people in my life that believe in the one true God, who believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all the people in my life who believe in the law of Moses, all the people in my life who got me ready to believe in Jesus, don't eat that. And you've got, like, you know, a Roman Christian who grew up eating a larger diet, just kind of saying, I, I don't see the problem here. God, God made everything. This is great. Then here's the other part of the double whammy. If you went to a market in Rome, what you might, and this, this isn't in this passage, it comes up in another one of Paul's letters. You might come up to a little booth where this guy is selling meat, selling food, and here's a little statue of his God. Here's a little idol. So in a sense, this little space here is sort of dedicated to this other deity and that's where you buy meat. Again, picture that from the Jewish perspective of looking at that and going, okay, this guy who worships another God, who has an image of that God where he sells, so he's kind of dedicated this sales space to to an idol, to a false god, everything in it to a false god, you're going to take that food and you're going to eat that and feel great about it. Do you you see the clash? How does Paul address it? Because here's the question on the table. If I love Jesus and follow Jesus, and if I want to send clear signals that I love Jesus and follow Jesus, should I eat this or not? That's the issue. Paul comes at it doctrinally, and and he's really applying at least two doctrines. And you've got to hear both of them to really hear where he's coming from. And here's the first one. Everything God made is clean. Everything. I mean, really, this is an echo of the end of the first chapter of the Bible where it says that the Lord God looked at everything he had made, which is everything, and he pronounced it very good. Now, listen to the echoes in this passage. In fact, he says it twice. Verse 14, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Then go down to verse 20. Look in the, the second half of verse 20. Everything is indeed clean. Now, that's... He just doesn't qualify. In fact, he says this in another one of his letters. If you're taking notes, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 4, Paul writes, "...everything God created is good, everything, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving." It almost makes us nervous, like we want him to qualify and say, "...except marijuana, you know, or except coca leaves or something like that." He just unqualified... Now, you can misuse those things, yes... I was joking with the 830 service about it. I can picture being quoted, you know, in the news tomorrow, like, minister approves of coca leaves or something like that. Now you can take any part of creation, misuse it, use it for wrong purposes, but the thing in and of itself, as God made it, is good, period. So if you stop with that first doctrine, you'd feel like, well, okay, that answers the question. Slam dunk. You can eat whatever you want. Then there's the second thing, which is what? The kingdom of God is all about relationships. The kingdom of God is all about relationships. Now where do you see that in the passage? Look in verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That there's a lot there. Think about this, those, those latter two terms he uses, peace and joy. When we hear those terms, we tend to think of it at the level of like my individual experience of it. My individual feelings. Do I feel peaceful right now? Do I feel joy? But this is Paul and this is Romans. So what do terms like peace and joy mean to him? Much bigger concerns. To have peace is not just, you know, I woke up today and I felt calm. That's great, but that's not what he has in mind. He's thinking about, wow, I showed up not right with God. And through the work of Jesus Christ, I am right with God, righteousness. And I have what we lost because of Adam and what I would have sabotaged through my own actions, shalom. Shalom. Shalom between my Maker and me. Through the work of Jesus, I have it again. It's restored. I have peace and I have joy. Even if my life is hard and I'm sad a lot of the time, there is this baseline joy because I have the living God that my heart always craved. The vertical relationship first, which affects what? All the other relationships. The horizontal ones. Look at the next verse. Eighteen, whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. And i would never noticed this before, but look at the way Paul uses the word brother. You know, when he says brother, he's talking about fellow Christians. Up in verse 13, he talks about, look, don't do anything that's going to hinder the way of, at the end of verse 13, the way of a Brother. But then look down at the way he uses that word elsewhere. Look in verse 15. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat. Look in verse 21. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Think about this. When we confessed our sin in the worship service and then we got the assurance of pardon, from the New Testament. It was from the parable of the prodigal son. It's the part about the father goes out to him and he kisses him and he puts the ring on his finger and they have the feast and they celebrate. But you know, there's more to that story. What happens after that in the parable of the prodigal son? You've got this older brother that stayed home and he worked hard and he was dutiful and he did what sons were supposed to do. And he comes in from working, of course, and there's this party going on and he finds out what it's about and he won't go in and so the father goes out to him the father figure, God. And he invites him in. And the, old, the older brother says, look, that's actually in the original Greek. Jesus puts that detail in. Look, all these years, I did exactly what I was supposed to. You never even gave me like a little kid, young goat to celebrate with my friends, have my own little party. And this son of yours, who just hauled off and rebelled, he comes home and you celebrate. If you know the story, do you remember what the father said? He said, son, everything I have is yours. But this brother of yours has returned. Do you you feel how brilliant that is? This son of yours distanced himself from him, squanders money on prostitutes. Hey, son, everything I have is yours, but this brother of yours just came home. And we're going to celebrate I mean, I, I know this is ABCs, but sometimes we have to say the ABCs. Other Christians are our brothers and sisters. Every other Christian, every other Christian, everywhere, near and far, is our brother and our sister. Every human being is our neighbor and is to be loved. But every Christian is our brother and our sister. So, what are the implications of that? Um, pretty massive <laughs> to begin with, would be one answer to that question. Huge implications, but what, what are some that the, the passage speaks about? First thing is this do not hurt slash, destroy other Christians. I mean, look at, look at the strong language. Look in verse, uh, verse 15 at the end. uh, The second part of verse 15. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Go down to verse 20. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. And the work of God, he's talking about Christians. Christians are his handiwork. and He's using other strong verbs. Don't hinder them. Uh, Don't grieve them. Grief is a strong word. Grief is more than sadness. grief, Grief is what you do. Grieve is what you do when someone dies. Don't grieve them. Don't set up a stumbling block in their way. And that's a very Old Testament way of talking, that life is a way. Life is this way, this road. It takes your whole life. Don't set up stuff to make people trip in the way of a brother. Now, what might that look like? How how might, unwittingly, you really hurt another Christian? Look, Picture this scenario. I'm going to take it out of food. Okay, that was their issue. But picture this: Let's say you have four Christian women who know each other, and they get together. Let's say they're they're eating out somewhere, and the four of them are sitting around talking. Let's say that all, uh, let's say that three of these women are married and have children, and let's say that a fourth woman does not have children maybe because she's single or maybe she's married and would love to have a child, but presently can't. And so the three moms who have children, as they start to chat, just start to talk about their children, and then from that point on, that's all they talk about. Is that unbiblical? No. Would that be a violation of the law of God? No. Are they free to do what we need to do with each other? Compare notes and talk about our lives and what's going on and share stories? Yes. But in that context, what are they doing? When it goes on and on and on, they're hurting the fourth. Maybe deeply. And sometimes we don't know we're doing it. And in our better moments, we wouldn't mean to. We are brothers and sisters who are to be thoughtful toward one another. Like, what would help you? Now that's the next point. What's the opposite of tearing down, destroying? Building up. Mutual building up. Not just, I'm going to do everything in my life to build myself up to be an awesome Christian. To build... Us up, one another up. Look in verse 19. So then let us pursue. Now that's not passive, active, intentional. Let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. That could be all kinds of things. Um, Here's one that I thought of that comes to mind. In fact, it's something I'm thinking about in my own life. Think about your own face. Whether you like it or not, it's your face. And it's the face that God made. And it's a good face because everything God made is good. It can change shapes over the years, but it's God's face that he made for you. All right? So here's your face. Now, when you're not smiling or frowning or lifting your eyebrows or grimacing or whatever, that would just be your face at rest. That's what we would call your straight face, right? And that is actually the most restful way for your face to be. That's your face when you're sleeping. Like if you ever look over at someone in bed and they're kind of doing that, then they're, they're listening to you. They're pretending to sleep. They're not really asleep because their face would be at rest if they were really asleep. What are they up to? When you're listening to someone talk to you, and I'm thinking really like in particular if a Christian brother or sister were talking to you, and maybe about something really serious, if they were talking to you, the most restful, comfortable thing for you to do would be to just sit there with a straight face. I mean, have you ever come home from like a real social setting where there's been a lot of this and a lot of, you know, and you just like, you have to take ibuprofen because you're so tired of how much exertion that takes, especially if you're an introvert, I've read. But if you're talking to somebody and they're pouring out their heart or telling you something really serious, and you just sat there with a straight face, a face at rest, is that a violation of the law of God? No. No. Strictly speaking, is it sin? No. Is it building that person up? I mean, it's not just the insecure people. Everybody needs the person they're talking to to look in their eyes and go, mm. or whatever your version of it, like to lift an eyebrow or nod or just say, I, mm, I'm, I'm sorry. That's using your freedom... To build someone up. When, yes, you could just have the right to just calmly conserve your energy and receive all the information and pray for it. But they wouldn't feel built up. The other thing is this, is for all of us to to say yes wisely. And now this goes back to the passage last week, but just to catch up. Paul talks about the strong and the weak. He's not talking about physical strength. But some people really get it that, you know, all things are clean, we're free from the curse, and they can live in that kind of liberty, and they know how to do it wisely. He would call those the strong. When he says the strong, he says we who are strong. So that Paul identifies himself as strong. But there are some who are weak, and that can be because they're new Christians, or because of bad teaching, or because of just... Baggage from their past that left a mark on them. And so these judgment calls about the Christian life are harder on them. Paul says to both groups, you be careful what you say yes to. You've got to say yes sometimes. But what does that look like? Look what he says. For the strong, what does it look like to be careful when you say yes? Verse 16. So do not let what you regard as evil be spoken of as evil. Excuse me, do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. And then look down in verse um, 22. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. I'll throw this out. Um, Not everyone here comes from a church background. A lot of different backgrounds here. For those of you who do come from a church back, background, there are different types, but some of you come from backgrounds of fundamentalism. Now, I'm using that term not in the old original sense of the word. In the old sense, I, I would be a fundamentalist. But I'm talking about what we mean about like cultural interaction and usually connotations of a lot of do's and don'ts. It is often the case that when you have someone who comes out of a fundamentalist past, and they really get a new sense of what the gospel is and of this freedom that we're talking about and that I've been set free from the curse of the law and that I have liberty in Christ and that everything that God made really is clean, it's kind of rare that if they're coming from fundamentalism that the pendulum just goes to a sweet spot. Typically, Christians overcorrect. And so what it looks like is, hey, I'm not a fundamentalist anymore, and I'll show you that by my fifth glass of wine. And I'm not saying that to say what's the ideal amount of wine. You know, like, it's not like, I mean, gosh, that's ridiculous. We all know it's three. I'm not saying that. The point is to say... I don't want to be under a yoke of do's and don'ts that are not coming from Scripture and that God that God does not impose. However, in showing that I'm free and I'm not under that yoke, I want to be holy. I need to be holy when I'm with the brethren, and I need to be holy when I'm alone. So in the interest of showing that I'm a Christian who's culturally engaged, I'm a Christian who's out there and sees that everything that God has made, uh, is that enough rationale for this movie I'm about to watch? Is that enough rationale for what I'm about to drink? Everything God created is good. We are free. But in the doing of that, let's make sure that neither... God disapproves of us, nor our own conscience. And that we're not hurting those around us or hurting ourselves in private. What about for the weak? Verse 23. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. two different commentaries that I was studying for this made this point. I'd never thought about it. I don't know if they had both read each other or what. But because of verse 23, a Christian can be looking at something in their life and it's simultaneously clean and unclean. For a Christian, especially the weak, as Paul says... The same thing, simultaneously, can be clean and unclean. It's clean because it's a part of God's good creation. It's unclean because for me, because of my upbringing, my past, ways I I used that thing to damage myself in my past, or what I saw it do to the people in my life, my conscience flares every time I think about using it or ingesting it or interacting with it. Paul says, don't squelch that. And it may be that because this thing is clean, that over time, through the work of the Holy Spirit, through the teaching of the Scriptures, through watching other Christians, the conscience is going to catch up. But for now, if you're weak, go with that. Do not sin against the conscience as it's informed by God's Word. it's a lot to think about. Let me wrap up with this, though. I, there's a bigger concern than just us trying to figure out how to do this. And I thought about a kung fu movie, Crouching Tiger. And if you've seen Crouching Tiger, probably the greatest kung fu movie ever made. I don't know. I think it is. And... Um, Sort of a character in that movie is this ultimate sword called the Green Destiny. And there's this warrior who owns it, wields it. He's a good warrior. uses it for good, for justice. And the sword is stolen by this young woman who's this rising warrior. And she just sort of has this, she's kind of like a, a prodigy of kung fu skills and sword wielding. And she's just wiping people out. And she's not restrained. She doesn't use it for justice. And she steals this sword. There's this scene where this warrior is standing before her, and she has the sword, and he's standing calmly. He's a monk. And he says, you need more practice. I can teach you to fight with the green destiny, but first you must learn to hold it in stillness. That's a great line that you know, you've, you've demonstrated that you can wipe out entire villages with this thing. That's not the question. The question is, when you are in possession of this great ability and power, can you be calm and not use it? And as strange as this sounds to say, this kung fu movie reminds me of the gospel. This kung fu movie reminds me of the gospel. And the reason is, the Lord Jesus was always and is always God. And this thing that we're going to celebrate in about a week and a half on Monday, Thursday, the night that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper and is arrested, you know, there's that scene where the apostle Peter takes matters in his hands and he grabs a sword and he cuts this guy's ear off and Jesus heals the man and he says to Peter, put your sword away. And then he says this, at least in, in Matthew he says this, don't you know that if I call out to my father, he'll, give, he'll send 12 legions of angels? One angel could have made mincemeat of that entire crowd. He'll send 12 legions. And I'm not going to do that. In a sense, he was free to do that. Had he done that, what would have happened to us? His, his not using of His power and abilities was why? Because He loves us. That He had to be arrested. He had to be beaten and spit on and scourged and killed that He might rise again. He is our picture. He, in doing that, that's not just how He saves us. That is our picture of what it means to love one another, that maybe this thing I could do, maybe this thing I could watch, maybe this thing in my Christian liberty, I could drink with you, in front of you. I could, and right now I'm not going to because I love you. I love you. That's Christian liberty. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, Thank you for your word. You know that what comes naturally to us is to use freedom for our likes, our preferences, our indulgence. Not to use freedom for your people, our brother, our sister, the common good. Change us. May we live as free men and women who love one another deeply. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.